you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week is week free of Spooktober. Our paranormal, horror, etc., etc. Month of comics. Last year, we discussed adaptation of a legendary horror writer in the form of the Dark Tower comics adapting Stephen King. And this year, we're doing some more horror adaptations, but we are turning our attention to Clive Barker. Specifically, we're talking about Eclipse Comics' graphic novel series from the late 80s entitled Tapping the Vein. This week, we read Volume 1. And essentially, each volume of the series contains comic adaptations of different short stories that were originally written by Barker. Each adaptation features different credits, uh, revolving artists, etc., etc. For volume one, we'll be talking about two different pieces. One is entitled Human Remains, and the other is entitled Pig Blood Blues. And I guess before diving fully into the actual comics for the day, what was your prior level of experience of Clive Barker? I'd seen Hellraiser, and I'd kept wanting to read The Hellbound Heart, but not finding a cheap way of getting the audiobook. Hellbound Heart being the book, the novella he wrote, that Hellraiser is, like, semi-adapted from. Well, if you don't mind it being in print instead of an audiobook, I can lend it to you. I had it in print for, like, six months, and for some reason, me and prose in print just haven't agreed for the last, like, year and a half, and I can only seem to get through these things in audiobook. I'm not that much more experienced than you are. I... Had heard his name forever, obviously, but really only in the last like year started getting into him and liking what I've gotten into so far. I also watched the first Hellraiser. I've watched a couple more beyond that. And friends and I read the Hellbound Heart for a book club a couple of months ago. But that's about it. I was also pretty new to Clive Barker. But I knew that he was the prolific gay horror guy. So when I got the chance to snatch up these books, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm interested. And I think with what we covered today, I think we'll make pretty clear that these were, in fact, good buys. But getting into Tapping the Vein, though Clive Barker's name is... In the big text, center on the cover, all of that. And these are adaptations of his stories. I get the impression that he wasn't really 
directly involved with Lee's. At least that's the way that the credits would make me assume because each story has separate people credited for, say, like the adaptation. So I don't get the impression that he was directly involved in like converting prose into script. I also did not get a chance to track down the original couple stories relevant to this volume in the time since I got this since some of Barker's stuff is a bit harder to get, unfortunately. But all that context aside, moving forward into the book itself, the opening story is entitled Human Remains. It is adapted and illustrated by P. Craig Russell with lettering by Bill Pearson. And the quickest synopsis is essentially that... A male prostitute has a trick gone wrong and that he follows this archaeologist to his apartment. This archaeologist has a habit of sneaking some of the sorts of relics and artifacts that he gets in his job and keeping them for himself. And one of them is this statue that basically turns into a doppelganger story, becomes a matter of the doppelganger slowly turning into an appearance and more into the main character, whose name is Gavin. And yeah, it's doppelganger horror. It's horror of the self. It's really fucking good, in my opinion. Where would you like to start? I mean, this is definitely, out of the two, I said this was my favorite. I really like this one. Um, I really want to read the the prose version as well and just see the other versions of this story. I mean, it's, so, like, the main thing that we learn about Gavin very early on is, in part due to Gavin's job, he's very focused on his appearance. Like, if you asked Gavin, what's your best feature, he'd be like, oh, my face. And so this story becomes very Narcissus, which, you know, it's also, it's a Greek statue. So, like, I do think we're meant to be sort of thinking about Narcissus. Like, we literally have him looking into the water at what's going to become an exact copy of himself in the same way that Narcissus in the story sees his reflection in water and is overcome. Only in this case, you know, the reflection is coming after you. But also, it like it's yeah. This one rules. It fucking rules. Yeah, when I saw like four volumes of this series in a used bookstore, and I was flipping through them, it was specifically the art of a few different stories that made me go like, oh yeah, I'll take a chance on these. And the art in this opening story was among those cases. As I said, the artist is P. Craig Russell. I don't believe I had ever read anything by him before this, but now that I have, I am keeping my eyes out for anything by him that I come across because it fucking slaps. It's really great. His style has this really nice, usually very thin 
line work, like thin line weights, really precisely inked and hatched, et cetera, et cetera. There is just a constant sense of precision. There is a lot of detail in basically all aspects from, of course, like the character work here is really important because of the nature of both the themes of like the self and then, you know, beauty, Gavin's attachment to his body, the importance of that to the story, et cetera, et cetera. But we also get just really lovely background details. I think that the page layouts are really nice. They flow quite nicely. It's always easy to follow what's happening, but they also stay varied enough to avoid feeling really static. You know, we get a good variety in shape and just like sheer number of panels speeding up, slowing down to enhance individual horror moments and... Texture-wise, also really good. You know, this is a story about a statue becoming more human and a human sort of becoming more statuesque. And so conveying the differences between these two characters who end up looking more or less exactly the same, but still conveying slight differences is really important, and I think he does a really great job of that. And Googling his name, Wikipedia has this sentence. Um, I have no reason to doubt it, but I'm just prefacing it that way because I haven't researched it myself. But according to Wikipedia, Russell was the first mainstream comic book creator to come out as openly gay. And... Aesthetically speaking, that makes a lot of sense to me because even if I hadn't known that, I was going to talk about just the way that the male form is drawn here with regards to Gavin and the statue and in general. You know, again, this is adapting a Barker story and from plot to theme and now to his fetics, there is just gay sensibility written all over it. And I love it. It all looks really beautiful. I really love the body language of the characters in this. There's a lot of really good, like, series of panels where characters' slight changes in position, you know, is used to, like, say a lot. Like, even just on page four, there's four panels of the archaeologist Reynolds where he's getting a drink and he is sort of halfway through the drink, you know, going in his head like, oh, is this man I brought home going to be expensive? Am I going to be able to afford tonight? And you can see the point where he's like, just stops and starts thinking about it just from the way that he's standing and the way his arms and his position has shifted in this course of four panels. It's great. Yeah, I like a lot of those sorts of small changes over sequences. There's also like an example at one point of multiple panels of Gavin 
leaving the apartment and walking toward the foreground where in the background we still see the silhouette of the apartment building broken up by just this blue square of the window in which we can see Reynolds like looking back out onto the street watching Gavin until he's fully out of sight before closing the curtain just lots of nice little details like that shortly after that we also get a page of entirely horizontal bar style panels in which it's essentially depicting the passage of time where at the very beginning we see Gavin standing on his own in the street and then as the page progresses we see the scene getting gradually more crowded than really crowded then clearing out and then ending again of him by himself and it also shows the passage of time and that the positioning of his shadow and the opening panel is opposite of how it's positioned in the final panel to reflect the movement of the sun across the day it's fierce I was going to say, yeah, the, the shadows moving is also, like, a really great touch. The colors are also, like, just really, really great. Like, they're just stylized enough. You know, it's, it is very, um, it's from that last bit of the sort of pre-digital coloring where I think that, like, they kind of nailed coloring before they had to relearn how to do it once everyone got computers. <laughs> Yeah, late 80s, you know, early 90s has some really great color work. Yeah, like, all of the, like, the contrast between the blues and then the yellows and warmer, like, reds that come up whenever the statue is around. And then, like, a lot of the rest of the story is very blue tone. Whenever the statue shows up, it gets a lot warmer in the color toning. It's really great. I think it's really effective. Yeah, the red, largely because it's often literally blood, but it's a great disruption to the otherwise sort of cool color palette, which, you know, just reflecting in color the way that the doppelganger's presence disrupts Gavin's life and... Yeah, there's just a lot of really great use of the warmer colors sort of being a disruption from that sort of like poppy red blood to the illumination of yellows for lighting and apartments a la, you know, something's in that room. There's sort of the dread build up by this unnatural yellow as we're about to figure out what the hell's around the corner all of that and everything about this is great everything looks wonderful which on that topic too like for a comic like this where the character's appearance is so important and pivotal to the plot you've got to visually nail it you know this could not be nearly as successful if the rendering of the characters was poor 
or even just like adequate, you know, like Russell nails just, oh yeah, that's a beautiful man. Yep. He looks like he would be wanted and he would know that. But moving, I guess, beyond just the artistic rendering I also like just like the touch of the supernatural to it of just like the premise of, oh, finding this morphing dangerous thing in the relics, you know, the unexplained terror of the past sort of thing. It's a regular spring for horror and media in general for a reason. You know, like, the human but slightly off, the doppelganger that doesn't look quite right, the stone, just like the statue nature of it. Again, the image of a man, but not quite. Yeah. yeah. What did you make of the sort of emotional arc as the two of them sort of swap places and warmth and... Just like how they act and everything. I, oh, how to put this? Um, I really love the bit early on where Reynolds is explaining the statue to Gavin, and the sort of the final part of the explanation is once it's done fully imitating everything about him that it can just imitate, it's going to steal the one thing it can't, which is his soul, and then. Gavin isn't actually worried about his soul. Like, the thing that bothers him about it is that it took his face. And so very swiftly, he loses everything about him that is actually, like, human. The way that he sort of drifts into just becoming a person who just sits somewhere... He spends like a week just sort of not dying, but not, you know, doing anything other than just lying. I think it's really great and really interesting. Yeah. With regards to the whole soul swap thing, I appreciate how well it works sort of regardless of how literal it may or may not be, you know? Because you could read it as just sort of a straightforward, simple, there is a literal taking away of the soul, and it is actual paranormal power that is sort of seeping away, you know, Gavin's humanity and his just sort of continuing to live while doing the absolute bare minimum, if that, of things to keep his body alive. You know, there's an easy sort of supernatural read to that. But there's also a reading in terms of just, like, the way that Gavin's emotions shift and the way that he reacts and sort of willingly lets go of the old version of his life that can sort of be read of an air that's not entirely paranormal and is more just like 
yep, it makes sense that the character is reacting this way to this situation that he has been thrust into. And I think the real epitome of all of this really is the culmination in a scene at a graveyard where essentially Gavin, upon not dying from just all his bodily neglect, remembers his parents and essentially is just like, I can't die without respects being paid. And so he goes to his father's grave marker, essentially. And it's just this scene of first him having his own time, talking briefly to the gravestone, you know, having sort of a conversation in his head with his father. And then the doppelganger looking more like Gavin than he ever has, like pretty much finished transformation shows up and starts talking as if visiting this grave is something he does regularly and is just sort of like falling more and more into the identity of Gavin and weeping and, you know, has a very literal, like, why is being human just an experience of pain sort of moment Whereas the actual human Gavin, let me see if I can find some exact wording here. There's this specific narration that I love. Gavin shrugged. What did he know or care about the fine art of being human? Which that's real, you know, just like here's a person gone for all they've gone through. What's he going to tell you about the meaning of life? Who the fuck knows, you know? So it's like, there is the sort of obvious, just like, oh, the doppelganger is leeching the life away from the original, and now the original seems all the more cold. But I also just love the read of it, of the human Gavin just sort of accepting what is as what is, whereas the doppelganger is sort of more vibrant as a result of experiencing these sensations for the first time. I don't know, I guess. How did you read all of it? More of just like a literal, like, just a soul-sucking sort of thing? Or how did you take it? Um, I do think the story doesn't work without the supernatural element of it. But also, yeah, the, the lack of soul resemblance to just you know, lack of motive, lack of desire for life. It's it's resemblance to something on the lines of, you know, extreme depression is really interesting. I also want to note my favorite detail in the graveyard scene is when we see the statue at the start when it comes up and it goes up to Gavin. If you look at its eyes, they're completely black with just a little white pinprick in the middle like maybe that's a reflection or maybe its pupils are tiny white dots and black eyes but then once it starts crying about at this point I think it's fair to say their father it has completely human eyes 
and its transformation is fully complete. This is like the last thing it needs is grief that Gavin doesn't even feel. Like it's pretty clear that Gavin had a difficult relationship with his father. And this thing is, it's only really replicating some of his feelings and not the whole deal. And that's the other thing that's that's kind of interesting about the scene is I think Gavin just keeps the resentment of his dad and this thing just like revels in the most extreme of the human emotions. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I want to say necessarily just surface level, but it is very much um, the emphasis on sadness, which, you know, you could also read into just like the doppelganger's history of life lived as something else and something undying you know, and therefore, oh, the idea of humanity and grief to it is important on that level of just like a sort of different way of viewing and feeling about death, et cetera, et cetera. But whether because it's incapable or because it's not actually fully mirroring Gavin or because it hasn't been around long enough or whatever the reason may be you know the emotions and like the manners of grief aren't actually one-to-one matching up I guess I had just like a bit of a difference in reading it and that I didn't even necessarily take it as like Gavin wasn't grieving so much as Gavin is just much farther along, has lived with this much longer, and yeah, just like more of a nuanced sort of, not to say that grief can be summarized really cut dry and easy, or that this is universally applicable, but I think at least in a lot of cases, you know, the experience of grief early on can be very significantly different from the experience of having lived with it for a long time. And I don't think it ever states exactly how long Gavin's dad has been dead, but we get the sense that it's been quite a while. So difficult relationship and all, you know, is sort of had time to, I don't want to say sort things out, but just sort of, live with it in a different way than the doppelganger who's having a very like baby's first experience of death you know yeah upon reflection this is about a gay man with a dead parent confronting his sense of self do we think there's any reason i might have liked this story (laughs) I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) Do you know the reference, this is my hole, it was made for me? It's from that Ito manga, isn't it? One that I've never read because I've not actually read any of Ito's stuff. It is Ito, right? Or am I a complete idiot? (laughs) You're correct. I do need to get to actually making you read one. I'm going to read the Frankenstein adaptation soon. Nice. It's on my list. 
because it's it's Frankenstein. I feel obligated. I'm I I read every version of Frankenstein that I come across. And this is the big one I've not done. Yeah. I pretty much always like Ito's art. Like even some of his lesser works that I don't think are as good as others. I tend to think there's at least always an interesting idea or interesting visuals. So I would imagine that you'll get something out of it. Hopefully you'll like it. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's Frankenstein. I will I will probably enjoy myself. The thing about Frankenstein is I'm never bothered by the adaptations of it in the way that I am with Dracula. Every time I come across a new Frankenstein, I'm like, oh, good. Yeah. I mean, there's the things that are just, like, bad, but they're just bad on their own. I'm never bothered by them in relation to the original work. Certainly the ones that are trying to engage with it, because I'm always like, oh, okay, yeah, you've got a, a new take. I mean, this is such a foundational work that it's essentially the origin of science fiction as a genre. I feel like a lot tends to sort of stick closer to the original there than it does in the case of Dracula. Yeah, well, because Dracula, everyone's interested in the imagery, whereas Frankenstein, everyone's interested in the relationship between the creature and Frankenstein. So even the adaptations that are basically completely different in every way, like, um, I don't know, the original movie, like the 1930s Universal Monsters one, still kind of steer their way around to doing the right stuff in the end. I mean, like, the se- the sequel to that is, is Bride of Frankenstein, which is the best chunk of the book. So it's amazing going back to that movie. I watched it last year. How much of it is concerned with phrenology? It's so bizarre. I'm like, why were they so fixated on phrenology in the 1930s? Absolutely yeah. insane. I mean, back to this. Sorry for bringing us onto a Frankenstein tangent. It's okay. This is a hole made for you. It is a hole made for me. With that said, do you have any topics or anything you feel like we haven't really hit on yet with the first story? Or just any moment in particular that you want to talk about? Just kind of how appropriate is that it's a Roman statue? You know, for the themes of the story, I mean, obviously I related it back to the Greek Narcissus. But also, like, Greek and Roman statues were all about capturing this sort of perfected form of humanity. You know, like, you look at any of those statues and they were just trying to make a statue of the hottest person that they could imagine like, the most conventionally attractive by, like, Greek and Roman standards, which is very close to, you know, what society thinks of as conventionally attractive now. Yeah. Like, especially with the male form. I, the, the the female form, actually, I would argue they were a little more realistic about, but the, the male form, they were very exacting in the way that they would form that. And, yeah, I, I just think it really works as, like, an origin for this thing that is... It's not imitating Gavin because it thinks he's deep. It's imitating Gavin because it thinks he's beautiful. Like, as much as this thing starts exploring the human experience, it isn't going after Gavin for the human experience. Gavin's human experience isn't something that it's interested in particularly. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting, like, cool choice. It really works thematically. So I just, I want to know, like, the... The statue's origin, I think, is a really 
great touch and it leads to a lot of cool art of these different statues in Reynolds's apartment which is great I I think this also like as a story to get adapted was a good pick I mean there's like there's a lot of text you know a lot of the narration captions to me feel like they're mostly lifting some of the prose from the short story version but it still works as a comic in part because uh p craig russell's like just clearly very skilled at layouts and how to convey a lot of this information visually but even when he is relying more on the prose it's still in a way that works well with the images it's just it's really good it's really cool yeah, I, I, I really love this one. I think it's really, like, it's a really interesting story to start off with. And then I think that the adaptation, I can see where the adaptation is like, well, if you were doing a comic that is just a comic, you probably just wouldn't structure your story this way. So here's where I have to sort of massage it into a comic book format. But it, it still works. It still works really well. Especially, um, like you said, the page with the shadows and um, like the using the same image of Gavin as people move around him, stuff like that, in order to capture things that I think were not something that is normally easy to capture in a comic. So, yeah, it's great, it's just really well done. Yeah, I think it does do a good job layout wise in terms of, like, how it physically fits some of the, like, larger bits of text, you know, the larger, presumably, direct quotes, or or the at least, if not direct, feel like they must be heavily drawing on the source text, and, you know, whether that be in the form of some longer bits of text in the white space between panels, or we get some, I guess, kind of Silver age style caption boxes and the way that they are positioned in relation to the image and how long the text goes on. And yeah, I think it all works really well. I was going to make a joke about Claremont's narration boxes. He also came to mind, yeah. It's, it's Claremontian in its amount of text, but... I think that's just necessary with the page space. Like, if you quadrupled the length of the comic, you probably would need less of the prose work, but I feel like then it would just be too drawn out. So I think this is better. Yeah, I think it works really well as is. Like, I'm sure it's a very difficult task to adapt, but I think it's successful. And honestly, just like, I think it's appropriate adapting a work of prose you know to still have a good amount of prose you know like it doesn't bother me i guess one more thing i also just enjoy a lot of the scenery the settings like we get a lot of time just in apartments that sort of enhances the eerie feeling in the everyday to sort of just continue conveying how Gavin's life is being disrupted. You know, we have Reynolds's apartment, which 
both has the ordinary sort of opening of just, yep, here's where they're going to have sex. But then the immediate spooky whatever of, oh, here's all the artifacts. Some weird shit's going to happen to later on when Gavin has abandoned his old home and is just spending all of his days just dozing in bed wherever he's renting now. And it's the most plain, unfurnished, undecorated space wherein all that's going on is just sleeping and the cold and there's nothing at all in the background to distract from just the character drama between him and the doppelganger. And it's just great. It's great. I think we're good to move on to the next one, unless you have any more. This one, Pig Blood Blues, is illustrated by Scott Hampton. Um, adaptation is credited to Chuck Wagner and Fred Burke, with lettering by Tracy Hampton. And while these are pieces adapting different short stories, the mere act of just putting them in the same volume puts them a little bit in conversation with each other. I think the most clear dichotomy for me is just sort of that the opening story is more horror of the self, whereas this is more interpersonal horror and horror of being the odd one out in this setting where everyone else is sort of buying into cultural norms and way of doing things that you don't. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. The base plot conceit here is that our protagonist is a former police officer who has been hired to work at a place called Tefferdown, which is basically like a juvenile detention facility. There's a lot of talk of how it really is just a prison, you know, for all intents and purposes. It is like any other prison and how it's structured and how everyone is treated, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, new guy at the prison. He sort of gets drip-fed little mysteries about what the hell is happening here. There is this youth there named Thomas Lacey, who he's sort of drawn to and who keeps mentioning another former inmate named Kevin Hennessy, who supposedly killed himself, but who Thomas says is still around. And for whatever reason, on site, there isn't like a full farm, but there's this little area with a sow, a big pig, a big menacing pig, and things just go on from there with the question of what exactly is the nature of the supernatural here? Has the pig eaten Kevin and is now sort of possessed by his consciousness is the pig possessing other people what the hell is going on 
regardless, we have just a really hellish situation that the protagonist finds himself thrust into. And yeah, where should we start? It's a pig versus pig battle. Nice one. I prefer the pig that's a sow over the cop pig. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, if I had to pick a favorite pig uh, in this book, it would definitely be the weirdest pig in anything I've ever read. I love the page where um, Redman sees the pig. Uh, from this point on, when we use pig, we're gonna we're gonna be referring to the actual pig. Redman is the policeman, <laughs> just to reduce confusion, audio medium, and all that. When Redman first sees the pig, there's like three panels of him describing how beautiful the pig is in like. Honestly, it was kind of a weirdly sexual way it refers to her as a seductress on trotters. And I'm like, does he want to fuck the pig? And then, like, suddenly the pig has word balloons with, like, evil drips on the bottom, like a Goosebumps logo, and they're red, and you're like, the pig is now talking out loud in an evil voice. This one's weird. Yeah, there's, like, the pig as the speaking entity that's, like, giving orders to the various juvenile inmates and asking for them to bring it flesh, but not just any flesh, because ever since eating some of Kevin, it now has a cannibalistic... Well, this isn't cannibalistic, this is just eating people, but it's a pig has a penchant for human flesh. It's, like, comically evil. I think it's fun. This is uh, a fun spin on Animal Farm. Instead of becoming communists, the, the pigs became flesh eaters. And then, like, the way it sort of develops is basically in a... I'm gonna wind up relating this back to Stephen King stuff because that's the horror I'm most familiar with. But in a in a Children of the Corn kind of situation, it seems as though most of the people here have wound up worshiping this pig, which ate. So Hennessy, they lie when Redman gets there. A uh, Leverfall lies, who's like the the only sort of staff that we get to know aside from Redman. Um, lies about Hennessy saying that he had escaped, um, which Redman later figures out that, no, he actually hung himself in the stable that the sow is in. And then it's sort of surmised that the sow ate some of Hennessy. And now, like, it it may be that the, the pig is possessed by Hennessy, or maybe the pig is now, like, empowered by this somehow, question mark. Like, what is actually happening here is deeply unclear. As someone who has read through this twice, I'm still just sort of like, right, but is it the pig or is it the boy? <laughs> what's the what's the origin point of, like, the supernatural evil? Because by the end, I do think it's... The, the, the pig is acting like a pig and it's possessing Lacey at that point and making him act as an extension of the pig in pig ways 
So I think it's the pig. But why the pig should happen to be this is also just sort of deeply unclear. Like, I mean, okay, yeah, the last story had a statue that was magic, and why is the statue magic? Because this statue's magic, and now I'm bothered by magic pig. But for some reason, that just feels weirder to me. I've enjoyed this story more on rereading it. I do still prefer the first one, but having now probably read this maybe three times, I do like it more. Um, I guess just kind of taking it as it is and just like letting it wash over me, you know, and just sort of taking it as part of its conceit that it doesn't really seem interested or Barker doesn't really seem interested in giving an explicit dead on explanation so much as just, you know, delivering what it delivers and letting it just sort of make the impression that it does. I'm wondering if the prose version is actually more clear. Like I'm wondering, is something being lost in adaptation? I would be curious to, see the original here yeah because i don't think this works as well in this format as the previous story i i mean i also generally don't necessarily think the prose version of this is as good as the prose version of the other one probably is just based on what the story is but i am now i am sort of looking at this wondering how much of this would be improved by presumably a little bit more page space, because this is the shorter of the two stories in this book. Yeah, it's slightly but shorter, but it still has so much to establish. Yeah, like, and how much of it, you know, winds up having to be dedicated to just setting up the situation. And also some of the things about prose that you can do, that certainly horror writers love to do, where it's all internal monologue of the characters and what they're thinking. Um, it's why, like, a lot of adaptations of horror things turn out to be really shit. Like, uh, Stephen King adaptations are more often than not awful. And in many cases, it's not because they were unfaithful to the book, but because it's just difficult to adapt something where so much of it is only working because it's so internalized with the character's like mental state and like a lot of things just really aren't actually that scary when you're not this person when you're not seeing it from their point of view and you're just sort of watching on screen um i don't know what's what's bag of bones that miniseries was terrible and that wasn't really that inaccurate to the book. But they, a lot of the strong aspects of that book are things that maybe just don't work well when you translate them literally into another medium. And I'm wondering how much of that might, this might be that where it's not working as well for me. Yeah, I think that horror is definitely a genre where like, what medium you're using is really going to affect the how of effectively conveying dread and such. It may sound like a joke to just like compare the pig to a pig, but that is largely what's happening. I definitely agree. I think that this one probably suffers a bit from being a bit shorter 
I think that the buildup of Dread could be better if we just had more time to see Red Man's sort of sense of fitting in or rather not with everyone else sort of play out. Because as is, you know, he shows up and then it's really not that long before we get the other worker being like, let us do things how we're used to doing things. But I think there is at least an interesting sort of core idea and relationship going on between Red Man and Thomas. And this especially, it does feel rushed, you know. I think it could have been more delicately handled because as is... The first time I read it, I was kind of just like suddenly surprised by the reveal of the idea of like Red Man as looking at one of the charges in this sexual manner. You know, I don't know. Yeah, that, that, that was, was odd. Yeah, I don't know that that was like really seated effectively here. And like, I was going... like, wait, he's a pedophile? Yeah. And it's like going back and rereading it you know knowing that already it's like i guess i'm just sort of reading it into it and you know obviously i'm no longer shocked and i think there's something interesting there you know i think a longer version of this could have done a sort of more effective build up of whether their relationship or at least just like, you know, a red man's personal view with regards to the two of them. And Thomas does get to be the star of some of the coolest moments of this story, wherein after red man saves Thomas, because essentially he comes upon most of the rest of the facility out just at the pig pen, being weird as shit, being cryptic, but more or less fucking worshipping the pig that they all think is Kevin, back to life, etc., etc. And I don't know if we've stated outright already, but uh, Thomas was frequently like being bullied and subject to being physically harmed by the rest of the inmates. But anyway, Redman saves him, saves Tommy, and as they're sort of running back to the facility proper, and as Tommy is like waking and coming to, he then proceeds to bite Red Man on the hand in this panel that really zooms in and feels very animalistic. And then the next time that we see this character, we get my favorite visual of the story just this splash page of Tommy riding naked on the sow which due to previous events is now burned so it's this like pale naked rider on this charred black sow against this backdrop of night and sort of mist in the foreground and it has a very, like, mythic quality to it with just, you know, again, the sort of 
what's happening, what has become of reality here. Very crazy imagery, but is really cool. And we end on uh, Tommy climbing up and like beginning to bite Red Man animalistically. And I think all that's very cool. I think that sort of the relationship between those two and then also back to Kevin could have been something really cool. I think that Tommy is a very cool character that just doesn't really have enough page time to be fleshed out properly. But I think there's something interesting going on here, at least. I love the sow. The the imagery on of the uh yeah, that splash page of Tommy riding the sow is my favorite part of the book. Of, of this story in the book, I should say. It's the place where the art looks the best for me. Yeah, I, I think there's interesting stuff going on. I just when I read these like evil pig wood balloons it's just it's a little too silly for me to find it frightening i'm like okay this pig is actually talking it does take it to a comical place yeah like the imagery of the pig is actually really cool and once it's all charred and stuff actually pretty frightening but then it's still like it still says stuff in the comically evil wood balloon. Like, he doesn't even get a normal... She doesn't even get a normal wood balloon. She gets an evil wood balloon. I'm like, what is this pig's voice? Why is it, like, in a slightly pink wood balloon? Yeah. What do you think of the art style in general in this story? Beyond just, like, that splash page? I'm normally more into something that's painted like this than I am into this. If that makes sense. Like, I don't dislike it. And I do think several of the images are really strong. It's a very well-drawn pig. But, like, I don't love it. I, I'm I'm just sort of like, yeah, okay. It's never something that I think works as a detriment. And I don't think there's anything I can heavily criticize. Because, like... You know, it's all rendered well enough. There's, like, some brief fight scenes that are, like, the continuity of action is good enough that I know what's going on. You know, I, it, because the characters are all distinct enough, I can still recognize them all when they show up in different contexts or even with different hairdos. But um, it also just doesn't wow me, if that makes sense. I feel pretty much exactly the same. Yeah, like... We get some individually stunning moments. The writing of the Sal splash page being the best, but most of it never fully grabs me. And, you know, I can tell some obvious artistic skill here, you know, some lovely use of color in places, et cetera, et cetera. But... It just pales in comparison to how masterful Russell's first half of the book is. Flipping through it, although it's not really something that's a problem to the point of adding to the confusion, I do think just sort of the page layouts and the visual storytelling in depicting the narrative just feels weaker 
you know, like the art doesn't contribute to me not really knowing what's happening, you know, as a result of like the art being sloppy or anything like that. But it also just doesn't really feel inventive. Like it feels like if some different choices were made and how to lead the eye along or some different focal points throughout, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it just feels like as is they didn't really fully take it there to really drag me into the atmosphere of it as much as I would have liked. Yeah, I agree. With that said, though, do you have any final thoughts on Animal Farm before we wrap up? Um, They say all human flesh is created equal, but some human flesh is more equal than others. I mean, this pig does actually a pretty strong opinions about who she wants to eat, so I feel like that's a fair quote. I just, I just love the bit where the pig gets up on the fence and just, like, has a chat with some kids. And it's just like, why didn't you get me the guy I wanted to eat? The fuck's wrong with you? That's fun, yeah. I just, like, it, this would be a great, like, low-budget horror movie. Like, that Cats and Dogs movie where they used CGI to make animals' mouths move, but they're all just sort of, like, there. So, like, the animals aren't really acting because they're animals, but it's basically a whole movie of just, like, you know, they're waving a treat behind the camera so the animal looks what they want, and when they're making the mouth move with CGI, just, like, do that, but with a pig for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just a pig standing there, just sort of, like, being a pig, but then we'll have the mouth moving, and it's like, Tomorrow, not this old pig in me. It must be white and lacy. <laughs> Which, again, takes it to a point of being more comical than horrific. Yeah, like, that's what I imagine when I... So that that's a large part as to why this didn't work for me, just because I think the literalization of the visual of a pig having a chat is funny enough that it stops being something I can take seriously as horror. So even when there is some really great horror imagery later on, I'm like, yeah, but I'm already kind of giggling at this pig. Even if it is a horrible nightmare pig now, it still has a little evil voice bubble. Word bubble. Yeah, it's no coincidence that the pig is coolest when it's charred and not really talking anymore. Yeah, I, I do think if the pig didn't talk, I would find this a lot spookier because if the pig didn't talk, then it would also convincingly, you know, if there is a supernatural element to this, which like would then be, it would be in doubt if the pig didn't talk, I would be like, oh, maybe this isn't supernatural at all. And these people just got like really weird about this pig that ate this one dude's body when they left the body in the sty. Like, what's the pig gonna do? Yeah, it would be more effectively non-committal to it. But it would also work as, like, because the pig, very clearly when the pig is talking, is not the dead boy who hung himself. Like, this isn't the charismatic young man who they... A lot of people refer to the pig as being that kid. And I read the pig's dialogue, and I'm like, no, it's not. 
that's not how the pig is being written at all. And then it's acting like a pig still. It's not acting like a person who is in a pig. It is not only acting like a pig, but it, at the end it makes someone else act like a pig. And I'm just like, if we had just not had the pig have a chat, then the level of doubt that would bring would make my questions go away. You know, it's it's not terrible. I make it sound worse than I think it is. Yeah, I think it's like decent to good, but just pales in comparison to the first one, which is just great. Yeah, it's also like got that tough act to follow thing going on with it. But with that said, what are we reading next week? We are finally doing the long-awaited Hellboy episode. We're going to be reading Hellboy Box Full of Evil, numbers one and two. For when you're looking for it, it's in Hellboy Volume 4, The Right Hand of Doom. It's like the last two issues in that. Only two issues? Only two issues. There's like, in in Right Hand of Doom, there's like, like a, a bunch of stories. And then Box Full of Evil is the last one in that. Okay. And, and it is the one with the monkey with the gun, which is why we're reading that one. And you recently read pretty much like all of Hellboy, right? I have read all of Hellboy with the pretty significant exception of um, I've read all the short stories and I've read all of the regular Hellboy stuff. So I've read everything that's in the omnibuses that are collected that are supposedly all of Hellboy. But I know that there is other Hellboy stuff, like um, series about some of the other characters, and then like the BPRD series, which I think also at some point features Hellboy, and I haven't read that stuff. But like essentially, I've read all of Hellboy. This will be my first time reading any of it. It's good. Hellboy is good. Shockingly, the Mike Mignola written and drawn series is, like, interesting and cool. And obviously, you know, the art's fantastic. Yeah. Looking forward to it. There is the homework assignment for next week, everyone. But meanwhile, thank you for listening this week, and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye, everyone. Excellent to each other.